history through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. Our aim is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And along the way, it's pretty amazing the perspective we pick up. We're educated, we're entertained, often we're really inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. And inspiration is the business Gail Halverson has been in for a long time. For some of you, just my saying that name brought instant recognition. But for the rest of you, spend this next hour with us and you're not going to forget that name either. Around the world, he's known by quite a few names. You can call him Colonel, you can call him Hal, Uncle Wackelflugel, that's German for Uncle Wiggly Wings, and maybe he's best known as the Candy Bomber, or should I say the Berlin Candy Bomber. That's the title of his book, which I have linked for you at hometownheroesradio.com. But Gail Halverson just turned 100 years old and received quite an honor in his home state of Utah. So I wanted to make that the focus of our time here on the radio this week. I had the privilege of sitting down with Colonel Halverson a few years back to record the whole story of how he became the candy bomber. And we're going to hear that, but first let's hear the voice of a centenarian, Colonel Gail Halverson, on the phone from Provo, Utah. And it sounds like you've had quite the week. Yeah, we had a big time in this. People are really great this town. Well, I guess I should also say happy belated birthday. I'm sorry I missed the big occasion, but what was that like for you on your birthday? Uh, 10th of October in uh, 1920, and it was just like old times, like last year's. And if I can keep it that way, I'll be in good shape. <laughs> Do you feel 100 yet? Heavens, no. <laughs> no, I'm still flying, and you uh, get along good in the world. I, I'm having a good time. So what all did they do for you on your birthday on Saturday? Well, we had a birthday cake, of course, with a large number of cows. We got, couldn't get them all on there, but anyway, we had a good time with the family. And, uh, you know, we didn't do any big, any big deals, but uh, we had a good birthday, and people mattered, family and few neighbors, and so it was good. And there was more than a few vehicles, I think, driving by in front of the house there, right? Yeah, it sure was. I was pretty amazed at the people here that uh, knew when my birthday was. So that's it, uh, just a number, I hope. 100 is just a number, but it's a pretty big number, and that number is dwarfed by the amount of mail he'll be swimming through between now and his 101st birthday next October. Cards and letters from all over the world, not to mention a larger-than-life tribute to him in Tremont, Utah, where he spent plenty of time over the years. We're going to hear about that a little later, and how you can help the Candy Bomber and his namesake foundation accomplish one goal that's still out in front of him. But I want you to hear some of his story. You definitely can't fit his whole life's journey journey into an hour. It'd probably take that long just to catalog all the U.S. presidents and foreign heads of state he's met. But I do want you to get a feel for what made him who he is and how he became the candy bomber. So let's have him take us back to his formative years in the beehive state. Well, the things I remember back then was growing up on the farm in Garland, Utah, was to appreciate food and love, and that's about all we had during the Depression, and hard work on the farm. 
But it was good work. It was a good way to grow up, working out in the field and throwing hay up in the hay wagon or thinning sugar beets, see an airplane come out through the blue sky and head up north to Idaho. And I'd stop and watch, and Dad said, well, you watch long enough, get back to work. And I was enthralled with airplanes from the beginning. So that, that was in my blood, uh, the contrast with the farm work every day. And it was a good life, a, a really good life. I don't know how I could have had a better, more love and uh, hard work and good lessons from a dad, good dad and mom. Out of high school in 1941, before the war started, I competed with a bunch of guys from Salt Lake, Ogden, and northern Utah for a flight scholarship. We had about 140 going to the ground school, and they gave 10 scholarships. Well, I memorized everything being in the farm, so I got a free ride to get a private pilot license, me and 10 other guys. We didn't have any money, but we pulled up 50 bucks a piece, and that's 500 bucks, and bought an airplane. <laughs> It was a Franklin 55-horsepower engine with single ignition. That means if the ignition quits, you're a glider. So you learn to look out for, for emergency landing places. So I had a great time with that, and we got going, and Pearl Harbor came along, and, of course, we signed up and got in the Army Air Corps. But that's how I got started to fly, and I loved it. I got a lot of time. Didn't have any money to buy gas with that airplane. Spent my 50 bucks on buying the airplane with other guys. So uh, I had a, a really good buddy, Conrad Steffen, in Tremont, Utah. He wanted to look, what, see what flying like was like. I said, I'm an expert. I got 35 hours. I'll, I'll show you how to do it. And so I, I gave him a ride, and he bought all the gas. So I flew a lot because he had, had a pretty good bank account. So we did a lot of flying together. I, I sure enjoyed Conrad Steffen. Well, and you mentioned uh, then Pearl Harbor happened, and uh, then you ended up in the Army Air Corps after that. What do you remember about that day and, and how that news hit you, that all of a sudden your country has been attacked and, and the world has changed a little bit? Do you remember how you found out? Yes, I was uh, listening to car radio. I had a ra even had a radio in those days. <laughs> good good for radio. I love it. I love radio. But uh, just the news broke up, and the man came in. I, couldn't, I thought they was doing one of these crazy shows, you know. I just didn't believe it. The Japanese were there from Japan be bombing Pearl Harbor. It was beyond my belief. And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm glad I got a, a, a pilot license. I know I won't be. So I felt sorry for the guys slugging on the ground, our buddies that was part of the team. And But I always wanted to fly. So I, I remember it. I just didn't believe it for a while until uh, I got a local radio broadcast that said it's true, that's underway. And so we were very much concerned then for the future, my buddies and I at that time. Of course, the, the real heroes for me were the RAF pilots defending Great Britain. The guys that are flying day and night, going up at night to intercept the, the German bombers. They, I was just enthralled with those. And Chesley Peterson was a guy that lived not in Utah, not too far. He had the enlisted in the RAF quite a bit earlier. And he had another dimension, knowing the Utah guy was out there flying the RAF before Pearl Harbor. So they, they were my ideal. And, and uh, when I signed up for aviation cadet training, and when we got to San Antonio, Texas for pre-flight, they had, had a notice on the board that said, who wants to train with the RAF? And man, I ran in right quick and said, hey, I, I want to train with the RAF. They said, well, okay, we'll talk to you about it. And the Brits were training their pilots in the States during the bombing. Of course, they had more room in, in Canada and the United States. So I ended up in the RAF training in Miami, Oklahoma. That's how I got into the business and 
ended up in the Royal Air Force as a fighter pilot. When he got sent back to the Army Air Corps, they needed cargo guys. And that was a blow. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I really enjoyed my time flying the transport business in lots of parts of the country. And, and that got me into Berlin Airlift, so that's not all bad. Was there ever a point, as you're training, and you say your heroes were the guys defending Great Britain and, and all those Spitfires and everything that they were flying over there, was there ever a point as you're pursuing these aviation dreams that you thought, you know, I might be risking my life here? Well, growing up on the farm, I used to try to ride my brother's horse. His horse was beyond my radar skill level, and when he'd take off, I'd ride his horse. So I always had a feeling of maybe pushing the envelope a little bit there. I had no real fear of flying. A few times in the air, I questioned that decision, but I just knew that I was going to fly no matter what happens. And I had confidence in the mechanics. If you end up being a glider, there must be a place to land it somewhere, miss the neighbor's house, and land the field. No, I, I didn't ever really have any apprehension about getting up in the airplane. Well, that's the second time that's come up that a you know engine-powered aircraft could become an engineless aircraft, and you could become a glider. And it's probably a little easier to accomplish that in that Franklin you had at first than a big cargo plane. Were there some times uh, in your career where you had to deal with those kind of situations where you lost engine power? Uh, yes, one uh, taking off uh, out of uh, Rio de Janeiro one day and. And looked out there, and all of a sudden, my right engine was engulfed in flames. I mean, it was just burning. I was in the Rio de Janeiro Harbor, had hardly any altitude, and uh, there was a big fire going on. But uh, it went through the regular procedure, feathering the engine, stopping the engine, putting out the uh, fire extinguisher to that engine, just pull the handle and get the fire extinguisher, and put the fire out, got the engine feathered. The problem was, I was maximum gross weight. I was headed from Rio de Janeiro to Brazil, in northern Natal, Brazil, on the north coast. and So I was maximum gross weight, and, but I was at sea level. So I got there, got got around on one engine and put it back down again. Well, I've had a, a, lost several engines, so to speak, and four-engine airplane, but that's no problem. <laughs> it doesn't burn, you, burn up on you. Well, I've lost an engine on the airlift, too, several times, but a four-engine is pretty comfortable. You can, it's not like losing one of, two, one of two. Well, and I think there are a lot of people out there saying easy for you to say, and, and maybe they wouldn't be so confident in that. And you mentioned Rio de Janeiro, and I guess the timeline is important on that, because probably a lot of people, and, and all the veterans we have on this show, you know, primarily they served in Europe or they served somewhere in the Pacific, maybe early on they're in North Africa, maybe up in the Aleutians. But it's not very often that you hear about South America during the World War II era. But that's where you were during that time. Can you explain what you were doing and what the significance of it was? That was unusual. You know, I put in for fighters and then up in transports. But when they assigned me, they assigned me to South Atlantic Theater. And we were flying supplies from Florida all the way down to Rio de Janeiro. But that was when we had twin-engine airplanes. Then we got the C-54 while I was in the in Natal, Brazil. We were stationed in Natal, Natal, Brazil. I got assigned to the C-54 then. And then we started flying out in the Tal East to Ascension Island in Africa. And that was a, a good run. And out in the Tal, we would ferry airplanes. If the guys were bringing down a bomber that was going to England to replace aircraft there, they'd go to the Southern Route in the wintertime down to Natal to Ascension Island, then on over to Africa and then up to England. And sometimes the airplane would break down in the Tal. My buddies and I would draw straws to see who got to deliver it to England before while the war was going on. But 
I've been did that a couple of times. I enjoyed that. I had quite a lot of variety flying out of there, but flew missions mostly to Ascension Island and Africa and back to the States occasionally and as far south as as uh, Argentina. It was a challenging for me, nothing like being shot at. Those guys always had my admiration and I felt kind of left out in a way, but I was uh, doing what I was told to do and I did the best job I could. When World War II came to a close, well, the war in Europe, VE Day, was that a big deal to you? I mean, here you've been carrying all these supplies, flying all these flights, trying to support this overall effort. When you got that news that Germany had surrendered, did that mean something? Yeah, I meant that some of my buddies who were doing the heavy work were going to be able to come home. And it was the end of losing some of them. I've lost several buddies that, of course, as everybody has. And uh, I was just grateful for that. And grateful that it was over for them that were doing the heavy-duty stuff. And, uh, and now they get back and re- reacquainted with the families and start the new life. Either some stayed in the military and a lot got out. But it was a ton of weight come off your shoulders on and, and behalf of the our people in the Army and the Navy and all those that were in harm's way in behalf of freedom. It was, a, it was just a, a new world, a new bright world out there. You know, and, and as you mentioned that, that you were thankful for your buddies. I'm thinking back to something you told us a few minutes ago, that when you got assigned to cargo planes, you felt a little left out. Here you had dreamt about flying the fighters and all of that. Looking back now, does it seem to you like fighters wasn't the plan for you? And if you had been in fighters, you might not be here? Well, that was always a possibility. So I, I just uh, don't try and dwell too much on the past and say that's been done and, and that's the way they want it. And so you accommodate to it. But, you know, you, you just take the path that you're given. And if you waste time looking in the rearview mirror too long, you miss turn off on what you might become. And what he would become would be a living, breathing example of compassion and human kindness that would have a greater impact than he could possibly have imagined. It's time for our first break, but there's much more to come. Head over to hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook to learn more about the candy bomber, Gail Halverson, as well as the educational foundation that bears his name. He just turned 100, and I'm pretty sure one of the presents he received is a lot bigger than anything we've ever gotten for our birthdays. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for far too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I've got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I believe I've found a better way with EECU. Take a look at myeecu.org and you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a nonprofit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Close to 300,000 members now in 10 different California counties. Over 30,000 ATMs, free mobile banking. And what I really love is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. In 2013, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. More than 1,000 veterans now have gotten to see their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 800-538-3328. This is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. 
Welcome back to Hometown Heroes. Joining in the celebration this week of birthday number 100 for the Candy Bomber, Gail Halverson. The Gail S. Halverson Aviation Education Foundation will celebrate his legacy for decades to come and do so not only by telling his story, but by providing opportunities for children to develop their STEM skills. If you're not familiar with that STEM acronym, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I have the foundation's website linked for you at hometownheroesradio.com and the Hometown Heroes Facebook page, and we'll talk more about that a little later, but to understand why he became known around the world as the Candy Bomber, we have to let him set the scene of the Berlin airlift. It was about 1945 at the end of the war. The way it was set up in Germany, because of the beginning of the war, they kept Germany in the two pieces of the East and the West. Russians had, the Soviet Union has the East, and British, French, and Americans had Western Germany. And then the Berlin... The capital was deep, 110 miles deep inside of East Germany. And uh, Berlin was made up of four sectors, British, French, American, and the Soviet sector. So here was an island of freedom, 110 miles deep in the Soviet-controlled East Germany. It was a very unusual case. And I went to, stayed in the military. They get, asked me to stay in after the war, and I stayed in. And uh, in that process, we'd have pilot meetings every month. And we were increasingly warned about the Soviet threat that they hadn't disarmed like the Allies had disarmed after the war. And they were headed west, and Berlin was in the way. And then we saw the tension escalate, and we knew something was going to happen. And then, then they shut off all the supplies on the ground and canal system from West Berlin across East Germany to West Germany. We knew that most of the people in West Berlin were women and children in Berlin as a whole, no matter what. Heavy losses during the war, prisoner wars, and so most of them were women and children. So the, I neglected to say what I felt right at that moment because it wasn't friendly after the war because Conrad Steffen, that I got interested in flying, uh, as soon as Pearl Harbor, he signed up, was trained, he did get fighters. He was trained in P-47s, and he was sent to, to England to support the bombers over Germany. And about the fourth mission... The Germans shot Conrad down and killed him. So I, I had a, a heavy a heavy burden with the Germans. And, and a guilty conscience. I got him started to flying. And I, I know that he would have done it one way or another anyway. So that was a situation. And what changed totally was knowing the people were different than Hitler. And there were women and children. And so I, I, I wanted to do more. Feeling I'd left out of the heavier stuff. I wanted to do do more and I volunteered to join the airlift and uh, was accepted and I wasn't married by then and I stationed at Rhein-Main in West Germany and flying into Berlin through the southern quarter. The crowd was so heavy during the startup of the airlift that all the barracks were taken. And when I got there, there was uh, just old tar paper shacks that weren't too good. They were just being trying to refurbish some. And uh, there was a barn, a big barn right there in Zeppelinheim, right behind mine, that had a loft in the barn, big loft, clean. And being a farm kid, I investigated the barn. It had a good floor, a cement floor under the loft. And, and so that, that was better than the old barracks they had. So me and my buddies took our beds up and, and slept in the barn. But even those conditions, one of my buddies in the barn had bombed Berlin during the war. And I said, how do you feel? about this thing. The war's just been over. We've been home two years about, 
just got so you come and he's a family man jump through the door and the kids quit asking who's that guy just getting back to normal life and then they call you back to feed the former enemy he'd been shot up over berlin two of his crew members were wounded he just barely got back to england in time to save their lives and i said how do you feel about that and he said well look far off it's a whole lot better to feed him than it is to kill him. I'm glad to be back. That's the reward a person gets from helping somebody and they're in deep trouble. And, and a, a lesson in forgiveness, you know. How that affected, what that burden would have been, almost unbearable. But he was effective on the airlift. He did a great job and rotated in the regular time. So attitude, gratitude, and service before self is the kind of thing that the airlift brought out in people. And, made it possible for them to dedicate their all to it. And I know you lived it. You flew them all, all those missions, and uh, you've been talking about it ever since and reenacting it ever since, so it's it's old hat for you. But for someone who's hearing about the Berlin Airlift for the first time, maybe you can explain what one of those missions would have been like, what you did, what you were dropping to the folks who were cut off, and what maybe challenges you faced in the process. Well, I got over there pretty early during the Block, after the blockade, and uh, like I said, I slept in a barn, no water, got a light bulb from the ceiling, uh, go through the mud to the, eat to, to the mess hall and get a shower even, and under those conditions, the morale of the guys flying was, was good. What we did is, uh, first, the requirement was 8,500 tons a day to feed over 2 million people, and uh, for the first month, we had a terrible deficit. Therefore, the schedule was, We'd fly three round trips into Berlin from, from Rhein-Main and, and Frankfurt and then sleep about eight hours and do it again. So we were flying maximum, flying C-54s like I flew South Atlantic. That's what the, what the schedule looked like. Now, you might start at night or you might start in the daytime. You just It was tough kind of getting used to the rhythm of whenever you get there, you go to bed get after three round trips. And the, the cargo was uh, dried eggs, dried potatoes. Of course, uh, one plane with dried stuff could carry as much as three or four airplanes if it's not dehydrated. And, of course, flour. But we also hauled a lot of coal. They'd comment on importance of energy. At the end, there was as much coal flown as there was food stuff. So we had the very lucky, in a way, well, never lucky the thing started in the first place, but it's fortunate, is a better word, that it began in the early summer. The weather is the best then uh, in Europe uh, uh, most of the year. If it's starting the winter, we've been in real trouble. But not long after we started flying, in, uh, and I got there in early July, we got radar. We had ground-controlled radar to help us stay in the quarters, the 10-mile-wide quarters and on the long-range radar. But better than that was uh, ground-controlled approach, GCA. The air bases were Tempelhof in, in West Berlin and uh, the uh, British bases, Brits had radar before we did, but the radar was the thing that really saved it. Tegel was the air base in the French sector, and Gatow was the, the air base in the British sector, and Tempelhof was the air base in, in the American sector. The thing that really saved the airlift was, was radar, the approach in, in bad weather. And later on, we had plenty of that, the ice and snow and fog. And in November of 1948, we had a real rough time. It was the first time we didn't get an increase every month. But we did better in December and January and February than we did in November. But 
weather was really bad then. How exhausting was that, and what kept you going? I mean, I imagine it was fulfilling to know that people's lives depend on what you're doing and that you're helping people out that without you aren't going to have help. But do you remember what you felt during that time and, and what drove you, what motivated you to keep on going? Well, the thing that motivated uh, me the most, and of course we, we were young, gosh sakes, that was <laughs> good too. Uh, but uh, when we were land, be in the daytime and not in a blizzard, they'd bring a, a certain amount of students, young students, out, out to the airfield. They'd escort them, and not in huge groups, but in separate groups. And See, we'd stand right by the airplane then, when it was unloaded. We, they wouldn't let us even go in the terminal building after a while because when that airplane was ready to go, they wanted you to start the engine right away. So we stayed with the airplane. We didn't go in the building. So they'd come around, and while we were waiting for them to unload the, 20,000 pounds of flour, whatever, they'd bring some kids around. And those kids would bring us even some flowers, a few flowers in the wintertime, or make a, a toy they made and give to you, and look them in the eye and the courtesy when they left, and think, give us a feeling dunk for, for all that you do. And those little girls and those little guys look up at you with those eyes and thank you for my bread. Man, nothing, you, I never ever had a misgiving about that and being the former enemy. The children, to me, were the thing that wiped away all that anger about shooting down Conrad Stephan and uh, about uh, the atrocities that we, we knew were going on. And uh, it, it was a new plate. The, the, the gratitude of the children, the just innocence, they were the ones that, that I remember this being the, the most motivating of any that we never hesitate to get back and get another load into Berlin. And the Brits were doing the same at Gatow and the French at Tegel. Everybody was doing it. Uh, but I think that I didn't find one change factor. It would be the, the children and uh, their obvious gratitude. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what inspired uh, that light bulb moment for you that led to the, the nicknames you carry with you to this day. And uh, I guess you're kind of like Santa Claus because you went from dropping coal on them to uh, dropping candy. I think he's legendary for doing some of those things. Where did this idea come from, to use one of these missions to drop candy for the kids? Well, I got there in early July. As I said, I thought this airlift would be over. Stalin was getting a black eye in the world press. All over, Soviets starving, over 2 million people, mostly women and children. He's, he's, he was losing ground. First of all, he thought it would fail. And with a fail, why? then he'd win. But on one day, I came back from three round trips to Berlin about 9 o'clock in the morning to Rhine-Main, West Germany. I was supposed to go to bed and start flying that night. But my buddy, John Pickering, from Mobile, who came with me, he had an airplane next to mine. Mine was empty coming in. He had one loaded about to go to Berlin. And I said, wow, this thing's going to be over pretty quick. That's how dumb I was. going to be over pretty quick. I don't have any pictures on the ground in Berlin. I got to I got to go to Berlin. I had a buddy with a jeep waiting for me. If you ever get here, he says I'll take you around and show you get some pictures of this bombed out city. And so I told John, I told my co-pilot, go to bed and the crew chief, go to bed. I'll I'll be back in time to fly to Berlin. And I'm going to Berlin. And they said you're crazy. And I said that's okay. I'm going. So I jumped on with Pickering and and went to Berlin. The jeep was there before I wanted to go around the city with a jeep. I wanted to get a picture of the approach. The approach was bad. They had the, this temple office built uh, in the city, and there were high apartment houses all the way around it. 
So you have to come over the top or go between them. There's one place you can go between them with radar to get down to land quick enough. I want to get the poop movies to come popping over those bombed out buildings. Hike to the, across the field to the uh, end of the runway. Airplanes coming right over my head but behind me and shooting movies of them. All of a sudden, of course, there's barbed wire fence all around to keep the kids off the runway and all the way around the field. And all of a sudden, I noticed 30 kids. They were about 8 to 15 years old, right at the barbed wire fence on the other side, looking at the uniform, and I got it with me right here, the uniform I wore that day at the fence. And those guys, kids, boys and girls looked at it, and they were friendly. They knew what Stalin was like. They were aunts and uncles in East Berlin, just across the border, no wall. Come back and say, well, you don't even do these guys. And they, they knew the difference. These young kids knew the difference. They were cheering me up. Says, now look, uh, this is good weather in July, but when the winter comes, you're going to get ice and snow, and it's going to be hard to get in here. But when that happens, don't worry about us. We don't need enough to eat. Just give us a little. Someday we'll have enough to eat, but if we lose our freedom, we'll never get it back. Kids, 8 to 40, some been probably in the Hitler Youth, some of them, and yet they knew the difference between freedom and having a managed government is going to manage your life. So those kids just blew my mind. They talked to me for about 45 minutes or almost an hour. And I said, I got to go. I had the Jeep waiting for me to take me around town. I said, don't worry about it. We'll never give up on you. Good to see you. Most of them spoke English. There's some English. And we had a translator, a kid that translated too. He says, don't worry. We'll never give up. Took off. Got about 50 yards, and a voice came to me, clear as a bell, you know. Wow, that was interesting. How come? And then it came to me immediately. It's the first time during the war and after that flown in a foreign country, the kids that age hadn't mobbed you. You're, there's an American uniform that has a soft touch. They got chocolate or gum, and they'd grab, grab you going down the street in different countries. Since George Washington, troops going down the street in the different places, handing out candy kids, that's nothing different. That's been forever. George Washington's troops did the same thing. But then when, I, when it hit me was, they had me stop dead, and not by voice inflection or body language or even any clue did they say, don't you know we like kids like chocolate? We don't have any chocolate. For a couple of years, we don't have any chocolate where we go, just go buy it. And when I realized that that not one child had broke ranks, and they were so grateful for a flower to be free, they wouldn't be a beggar for more. It blew my mind. I just couldn't, I, and I said, holy cow. So I said, I hope I got something. And I reached in my pocket, hurry, and I'll find us two sticks of Wrigley's Double Mint Gum. And, and I hesitated a minute, and I took off again. But that is not how that encounter ended. And who knew that two little sticks of gum could change the world? If you've read his book, The Berlin Candy Bomber, you know how that happened, but you'll hear it from Colonel Halverson himself when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler.
Welcome back to Hometown Heroes, catching up this week with the Candy Bomber, 100-year-old Gail Halverson, who earned that nickname for his actions during the Berlin airlift, actions that would spur a movement that ultimately helped turn the tide of world opinion. When we left off, he was talking about the group of German children he'd been speaking to on the other side of a barbed wire fence in Berlin. He had just two sticks of gum in his pocket, not nearly enough, he thought, to please all those kids. I said, two sticks, you're going to have bloody noses. Get out of here. Two sticks are not going to make any difference, and they're just going to get these kids with a bloody nose. I got about 50 feet of that, and the voice clears the bell. Just no equivocation. Go back to the fence. Just like a command. To hear that voice now. No, no hesitation. Go back to the fence. Well, I turned around, and when I did, those kids just grabbed the barbed wire and waited. And I got there, and... And I pulled it out, and boy, they watched every move, broke it in half, and passed to the kids that did some of the translating. And, and here come the rush. And I thought, oh, dear, be careful. All the little girls, and they were kind. They asked for a piece of the wrapper. And the kids that got a half a stick carefully tore off the outer wrapper and the tin foil. I stood there, dumbfounded, and passed out the strips of paper to the other kids that didn't get any gum. And uh, the kids would put that up to their nose and smell it and smell it. And I turned to leave. They had it crumpled up in their hand to take back to show the mother if she still, or if dad, what dad, not too many dads, to show them what they found at the fence that day in Berlin, a piece of wrapper on a half a stick of gum. When I saw that, it just blew my mind. I said, boy, for 50 cents, I put them on Easy Street, give them a full stick of gum to keep the wrapper. And then the, the red light came on. Well, you, you, you should be in bed now. I had a good co-pilot. I should have been in bed in, in right mind that moment. And uh, But I had a great co-pilot, John Pickering, and I knew that he could find his way to Berlin. I'd, I'd be awake that time. So I, instead of going to bed, I went back, to, had to go back and start flying. Anyway, those kids, uh, just unbelievable in their attitude, attitude and gratitude. So the, the, that's how it started there. Well, and I'm sure you had no idea what it was going to turn into and how big a deal it would become. I mean, here you just have this innocent idea, and you talk about hearing voices in your head. you think that was lack of sleep, or do you have some other explanation for that? I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, and we call that the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost rides with you and helps you, prompts you what path to take, and that where you end up is if you follow the, the GPS of the Holy Ghost, then you're going to end up in a, a pretty good place, so... Well, I did. I got in trouble. I came back the next day over the field, and he said, how do we know what airplane you're in? And uh, There's an airplane every five minutes, and we, we'll be tired if you don't get in soon. And I said, well, I'd, when I came over the field, I'd wiggle the wings. Wiggle the wings like I did over the farm when I got my pilot license. Showed Dad that was me. My dog, I had a black shepherd dog, and he'd chase airplanes. And he'd, I see my dog chasing my airplane from down below. But so I said, I'll, I'll wiggle the wings and, and that'll know that, that I'm there. And uh, that's how we communicated first. How much candy did you end up dropping? And how amazed were you when you saw the impact that it had on awareness, not just there in Germany, but around the world? And, and what kind of dent that made? Well, I started out with two sticks of gum and it ended up, we couldn't buy much chocolate. All we could was, was ration. And so we could buy just so much every week. And so my buddies gave me their ration. And, and then for three weeks, we dropped it. And the crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger. Came back from Berlin one day, 
to ride mine and officer met the airplane. Come steaming on board. He said, who's flying this airplane? My buddy pointed to me. He is. Why? Colonel Hall wants to see you right now. What for? He'll tell you what for. Colonel Hahn and Alverson. I flew for him in Mobile, and he came over to Lieutenant Colonel, the head boss. And uh, he says, Alverson, well, what have you been doing? I said, flying like mad, sir. I'm not stupid, he said. What else you been doing? And then I knew he knew. He pulled out a newspaper, threw it on the counter, German Berlin paper, right on the front page of my airplane. Parachutes coming out of it. Kids lined up a barbed wire fence. I said, holy cow. Oh, Alverson, why didn't you... Tell me about that. He says, sir, I, there's no excuse. I had Utah Utah State. I had two quarters of ROTC. There's no excuse for an act like that. No excuse, sir. So he says, well, General Tunner called me up. The big boss, General Tunner, called him up. Hon, what have you been doing dropping parachutes over Berlin? Oh, General, you know we're not dropping anywhere Berlin. We're unloading all the coal and food on the ground. They got an unloading crews. We wouldn't drop it over, pulverize it, or hit somebody. We're, it's not, we're unloading it. He said, Colonel, you better find out what's going on in your outfit. Clunk. What I found out for that in my military career is don't try and impress your boss's boss. Work on your boss. Well, I didn't want to impress anybody. I didn't want anybody to know about it. So that's how... I found out about it, and then we uh, went crazy. The guys in the States sent stuff, all the schools sent things to Chicopee, Massachusetts. They tied up everything and uh, sent it over ready to drop. So, so the candy companies, uh, Hershey was the biggest one, that they'd say, how much of this you want? And we'd give them some ridiculous number, and they sent it. So we sent it up to Chicopee, and, and then the school kids from all around the area, Chicopee Mass, would come in and tie up with these things in big cardboard boxes and put them on the airplanes going over from west of Westover mostly, Westover Air Force Base, uh, over the Rhine Mine. And, and then we'd, we would uh, lock it up and load it up for my buddies to give them a map of how to find it and how, how to different places so we didn't drop all the same place. But that's that's how we distributed that much candy. It was 23 tons. 20 tons dropped in, in that time, and 5 tons at Christmas time distributed on the ground to the Christmas parties on the, on the ground. The ultimate sacrifice was 31 Americans that were killed during the blockade and, uh, and 39 Brits that gave their lives to the former enemy. Yeah, and, and who's to say you wouldn't have become one of them, but instead what you became was a legendary figure, especially in Germany. When you finished that tour over there, when the blockade had ended and some kind of normalcy was restored and you headed back to the States, was it hard to fathom just how big a deal this was and how that one little idea and those two sticks of gum turned into such a, a worldwide phenomenon? I never did. I still don't understand it. <laughs> I still don't understand it. Uh, small things perceived that, which is great, and it was a very small thing. And I uh, just came back from Utah to a huge celebration there, and Kitty Hawk to fly the Berlin Airlift Memorial Airplane, the Spirit of Freedom with Tim Shope, the founder, dropping uh, memorial flowers for those who were killed, and also candy bars to the kids, as usual. So it's still still going on. I'm still as amazed as I ever was. And, and But there's nothing quite like a, getting a candy bar coming out of the sky, even though they got plenty they can buy in the store. To see those parachutes come out, it's amazing how they look. And when you hold, drop uh, 50 pounds of candy bars on parachutes, and the kids chase them like the kids did in Berlin. They 
just run after him. It's a, a sort of a magic thing, but it has surprised me a great deal. But it's fun doing it to see the kids today. And I talk to a lot of schools and show them the old, old movies I took of their list. And the kids still relate to it. Well, it's got to be every kid's dream to catch a candy bar falling from the sky. I mean, I think there's whole books written about that idea. But this has turned into a defining part of your life, and it's allowed you to meet presidents of our country and other countries. It's taken you all over the world. Out of all of that, what are you most grateful for? And how long are you going to keep doing this and, and keep doing all these reenactments and telling your story and going here and there and everywhere like a jet setter? Well, I couldn't be more grateful for all the great, wonderful support, the schools all over the United States. Without them, we wouldn't have those parachutes to use. Grateful for the support of the the children, the American children. And I've had letters from kids that uh, lost their dad in the war in, in, in Germany. And yet they said that as bad as they felt, they they thought it was a healing influence. But I uh, was very grateful for the people that have made it easy for me to keep flying and for Heavenly Father for me being able to keep flying. I'm not the first pilot, I'm the co-pilot on the airplane and to go around and meet the kids and it brings back the memory of those kids back during the blockade to see them running after the parachutes today. But one thing I've taken from this is that fulfillment in life doesn't come from more money or a newer car or a bigger house than a neighbor and the real fulfillment comes from serving others. The dead sea's dead because it wraps its arms around all the fresh water that comes in and gives out nothing. And wherever you live, United States or other places, you you'll find Dead Sea souls. When they say, first of all, if somebody is in need, they say, well, what did you give me? Find out what the reward will be before they, they act. And that cuts off that the real blessing, the greater blessing. So service before self is the antidote. Service before self, you see the need, do what one can without question for the maximum benefit, maximum reward. The other thing is gratitude. Gratitude is the elixir that it breaks down barriers between people. It shows a consideration for somebody besides yourself. And showing that gratitude, like the children, is silent gratitude. Their lack of saying, gimme, gimme, their silent gratitude is more powerful than a verbal one. Gratitude, attitude, service before self, and small decision. Like I said, put your footsteps on the path at least to where you end up, for good or bad. Those are the things that the airlift taught me and affected my life, has for since that time and still does it changed the hatred to friendship i know that you're not looking for attention you're not bragging about anything and and you're going to be uh hesitant to probably give me an honest answer on this but what's it like when you go back to germany the reception that you get the way people react to you even now can you give us a taste of what that's like for you how they react to seeing you and hearing your, your name, and maybe you can even say that in German. What do they call you in German? Uncle Wackelflugel means Uncle Wiggly Wings, with a Schokoladen Flieger, the chocolate pilot. Because of this, there's a S. Halverson School in Berlin. It's a wonderful school, and these kids have been supportive, and go back there, and it's like homecoming. <laughs> and they've done so many good things for me when I go back, and the parades that they have, we kids turn out especially well in the old folks that were there doing the blockade every time i go back to to berlin i run into more than one on most occasions that 
was there and tell one tell me how they caught the parachute. One boy with a lot of stories about that, but he was going to school and through the clouds came the parachute. But the problem was there's a little pond right there, a land in the pond. So he waited, he rushed right out of the pond over his knees to get the parachute. Went to school and the teacher chewed him out when the boy told her what happened, why she let him go home and get, get some dry clothes. Well, the letters, there's too many letters to mention. Well, for a farm kid that didn't have inside plumbing that I got in high school, I never forgot that. And uh, But it is a, a joy to go back and hear different stories from someone I had not been met before. It's been wonderful. I just want to be able to keep going as long as I can, and then when I can't do it anymore, to get out of the limelight. But I just uh, want to do what I can, and the point X, I'm going to retire. I've been saying that for quite a while. That's what he was saying at 95, and not too much has changed since then, as you heard earlier from now 100-year-old Gail Halverson. After a drive-by birthday parade to celebrate that century mark, this father of five, grandfather to 24, great-granddad to more than 60, and Uncle Wiggly Wings to more than he could count, was honored with a larger-than-life mural in Tremont in Utah. That's where he first caught the aviation bug, seeing planes fly over while he was working on his father's sugar beet farm. And now, in downtown Tremont, the 76-foot-wide facade of a brick building features a mural of Colonel Halverson in front of a giant, half-wrapped chocolate bar, like the ones he and his fellow pilots dropped millions of to German children more than 70 years ago. I have some news coverage of that mural unveiling linked for you at HometownHeroesRadio.com and the Hometown Heroes Facebook page. And when I caught up with the chocolate Chocolate Flyer himself this week, I had to ask what it felt like to see that enormous tribute in Tremont. Well, it felt like that uh, somebody remembered. And that's quite a long time ago, and I flew the airlift and uh, other activities in the war, and uh, I thought, my gosh, that's pretty neat. Here it is, this far after the war, and people are still remembering, I, I thought that was really neat. Well, and they're going to remember for a long, long time. I think the question I'd love to hear you answer is, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now, when somebody drives by that mural or they participate in the Gail Halverson Education Center, you know. The warm spot in my heart wherever I am. (laughs) What do you hope that people understand or take away from it when they see that painting or they hear your story and they understand what you and others did so long ago? I tell them that. There's a few things in life that are really important. It's hard to pick out the best, but attitude, gratitude, and service before self is a way to, for happiness. If you get the right attitude and don't get off the track there, and gratitude, be grateful. You, you just, the world didn't get this way by itself. Those who have gone before Attitude, gratitude, and service, serving others. There's no better or sure way of feeling good about yourself than helping somebody that needs it. That was the Berlin Airlift. The Berliners needed to stay free through day and night. And I never flew so many hours in the shortest time than that, but I never felt better about it. So the little things in life are important. They make life meaningful. I think that's what I've learned in life in the Air Force for 31 years. It's a great life. Good people out there in the United States of America. No place like it. I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to live here and to 
leave here on occasion in different circumstances and see what the rest of the world is like. We're an exception in how we're governed. Uh, so I was born in the United States of America. Amen. You just shared some of the things you've learned in 100 years of life. But I'm curious if there's anything you're still looking forward to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a different world out there, and people have different opinions. And uh, we just got to remember how blessed we are to be in the USA. Well, people like you have made it a better place to live. So thank you for your example and uh, your words. Is there anything else you want people to know from a centenarian? No, just uh, tell them they should stop at night before they go to bed and say their prayers and pray this, our system of government can be maintained and the people will be elected, the best people. I'm just grateful every day I wake up that I'm an American. An exemplary American, Gail Halverson, now 100 years old, but looking forward to the next time he can hop inside a C-54 and once again reenact what he did all those years ago. Perhaps that'll happen in Spanish Fork, Utah, where the Gail S. Halverson Aviation Education Foundation is raising money now for a permanent home, a building where young people will be able to come and not just learn about the Candy Bomber's powerful example, but also learn robotics, rocketry, and other STEM disciplines. If that's a mission, you'd like to support, I have the Foundation's website linked for you at hometownheroesradio.com and the Hometown Heroes Facebook page, or you can go directly there if you type in thecandybomber.org. That's all the time we have today, but thanks so much for listening. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free.